0: Welcome to the Let's Be Honest podcast. This is Frank Styles. We are episode 23. Episode 23. I want to thank everyone uh, for tuning in. I've been going away for a while. As you guys know, I am working on another show. But uh, I wanted to come back. We are now in the month of April. And... If you remember our last episode that we actually published, well, no, not episode 22, the one before that, we published a special edition of the Let's Be Honest podcast, and we had author Stu Wexler on, who discussed the assassination of Martin Luther King. Well, we've asked him to come back. It is the anniversary of the assassination. But not only that anniversary of the assassination, there is a new documentary series that is coming out regarding the Atlanta child murders and, and speaking with Stu about some stuff, he's got a lot more to tell us folks. I did not know, but, uh, the same people that had something to do with King being killed. He actually believes that they also had something to do with the Atlanta child's murder murderers. And, uh, he's here to talk with us tonight, live in the Styles boss studio. Stu, how you doing, man?
1: I'm doing well. How are you? I'm
0: great, man. I'm great. You're coming in loud and clear. And uh, I want to appreciate you coming on and educating us and letting us know exactly um, about this because I don't believe a lot of people know um, or maybe they for, they've forgotten over time. But let me just give you some feedback on what, what um, has been told to me uh, through my audience, and uh, I'll let you respond. But a lot of people felt that your explanation of King's assassination made more sense than any conspiracy theory or any other theory that people have come up with in the past. Um, and when you think of it, taking everything else out of it, it only makes sense. So, man, I'm glad to have you on. And uh, I, I think we're becoming friends. And, you know, there's so much knowledge that you have that I don't. And uh, I'm just glad to have you back on as a guest, man.
1: Well, I very much appreciate you having me on and giving me a chance to sort of get these ideas out there, because maybe we'll, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Unfortunately, at least the residue of some of this is still very much in play in everything from what you saw in Pittsburgh to what you saw as far away as Christchurch, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So um, it it was – it's been so ignored, and it's become so much of a – at the time when it was becoming such a ubiquitous part of white supremacist ideology – That it's now to the point where people are embracing aspects of this particular ideology, Christian identity, which we'll talk about, and applying it without probably even knowing where it comes from. Hmm. So um, I definitely like to hopefully get the audience attuned to that, and maybe then it could get out to maybe some people in positions of influence, maybe in law enforcement or in politics. So that we can maybe do something about it.
0: Now, tell us a little bit more about Christian ideology, because a lot of times you don't hear people um, talking about it. I tried to find as much information on Stoner as I could, and there's a lot of stuff in Wikipedia. Um, you know, unfortunately, YouTube and its new policies now—they're um, not tolerating any type of hate speech or any type of things regarding hate. So it's it's hard to find any type of information on Stoner. But explain to the audience who Stoner is, because a lot of people. I didn't know this until I until I, you sent me the excerpt from the book in the chapter in chapter eleven that Stoner was actually convicted for the Birmingham bombings, which involved, if people remember, uh, listening audience, if you remember the four little girls, if if, if I'm correct, uh, that were most famously correct.
1: Well, so let me clarify a little bit. He was actually convicted of a 1962 bombing uh, related to uh, Fred Shuttleworth's church.
2: Okay. Uh,
1: And so he I frankly think he actually needs to be looked at in more depth for what he may have done with the Birmingham bombing
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh, the in that situation. In fact, if you were to ask virtually anyone in law enforcement in the southeast on September, say, 17th of 1963, just a couple of days after the bombing, Mm-hmm. Who do you think was involved? You would have gone around the police chiefs, and I'm not making this up. They actually say it in in government files and newspaper articles. Stoner would have been their number one candidate for having masterminded the bombing of the of the Sixteenth Street Baptist Church in Birmingham that killed those four young girls. And in fact, he was also the number one suspect when the Attorney General of Alabama, who later became the Governor, Bill Baxley actually got access to government materials and reopened the case. Mm. Now, if you ask Baxley, he'll tell you, um, and Doug Jones later on, we weren't provided with anything that led us to believe that Stoner did it, and we think maybe he didn't. I happen to think there's materials that they still have not been provided with. Mm-hmm. But all that being said, uh, he was very active in masterminding bombing operations in the southeast, the, the one he got convicted for was one of several. He got away with quite a few of them in part because he himself was a lawyer mm. and he knew exactly how to get enough you know, legal distance between himself and the crimes that he would get out of these things. But he was a master bomb maker, planner, and just all around bad dude. And I would say, again, I think without hesitation, one of the worst racist terrorists that we've had in this country, but is not very well known, despite that fact. Yeah, Stoner
0: is an interesting character. Um, When I was doing some more research, because again, after I read the chapter from your book, um, when I did some research on it, it was almost scary some of the things that um, Stoner said and i actually posted this just you know to get to get information out there so people knew you were coming back on because we had such a, a big response from it here's something that uh, stoner said and this is a quote stoner said jews are the vipers of hell they should all die in hell being a jew should be punishable by death the n word the the end is a species lower than the apes hitler has been the greatest but still was too moderate Jesus laughs at their death. And that's quoted uh, by the gentleman we're, we're talking to, everyone, Jv Stoner.
1: That's, Stoner was that's scary. So super, yeah, very scary. Here's all people need to know about Stoner. Stoner was so vile that clan groups kicked him out. I mean, if, if you're too vile for the Ku Klux Klan, that's all anyone needs to know. So he forms a group with his partner. The first group he forms— is called the Christian Anti-Jewish Party. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after, he formed something called the National States Rights Party. And when people look at that name, even scholars, they see it as just this sort of racist political organization. But if you actually dig in, even at the time, if you look at, for instance, the California Attorney General's report from 1965, they were more violent than the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Ku Klux Klan people tried to distance themselves from the National States Rights Party because of how violent they were. And sort of the other big sort of innovation, for lack of a better word, that they really brought to the fore was their anti-Semitism to match their racism. Mm -hmm. So, And in many ways they were even more, you know, determined to go after Jews in some ways than African-Americans. But and this is an unfortunate commentary on America. um, It was just the case that it was more convenient, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to actually launch most of their violence against black targets, because that could gain widespread acceptance amongst conventional racists and not the kind of ideological, religiously motivated racists that you had in Stoner.
0: Right, and he's from Georgia. um, And looking at his history, so he's right there. He's been. It looks like he's been down south, you know, all the years that he was there. So, you know, what more of a better place? You have Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, Florida. You know, he's right in the center of where we know a lot of racism took place, um, which is what the civil rights movement was about, obviously. But how does someone like him get into power? Was was his parents influential? Did he? Uh, was he up and coming, or how did he get into power to to be that powerful?
1: Um, well, I think what he was – the way to look at the power of Stoner is to look and, – and, and other people who embrace Christian identity was to look at their ability to manipulate, rank-and-file racists and sort of push them and channel them in the direction that they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And part of that was – sort of natural adaptation. As I said before, Stoner kept on getting kicked out of Klan groups. Right. In part because of his anti-Jewish, he was advocating for anti-Jewish violence. And to somebody, and I'm not trying to make too much light of it, but to say a Ku Klux Klan member in 1955, you'd scratch your head a little bit at somebody who's saying, Why don't we blow up synagogues too Mm -hmm. when the people who are leading the civil rights movement are African-Americans? Right. And when the people who are a so-called threat to your way of life, your so-called way of life are African-Americans. So they're sitting there going, why do you want to go after Jews so much? We should be going after Fred Shuttlesworth. We should be going after Martin Luther King. We should be going after the Little Rock Nine. Mm -hmm. What are you, where, where are you talking about? And so what, Not just Stoner, but several other people who were convinced to their core of their soul that the Jews were manipulating people of color, including in the civil rights movement, as part of this cosmic conspiracy against whites. What they eventually adapted to doing was going into conventional or presenting themselves as conventional racist segregationist groups so that they can harness the membership numbers that come with that, and then redirecting that in provocative acts of violence that they hoped would eventually awaken the conventional white European against Jewish people as well as people of color.
0: Gotcha. So, so this
1: your
2: agenda.
0: This guy was. This guy was definitely bad news. Definitely bad news. Now let's 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 pick up a little bit where we left off last time. So the assassination has occurred. Um, yes. Stoner, we know um, based on the history. Just to recap for some of those that missed the the, the last special edition of the episode, Stoner and his group of people were um, uh, wanted King for a long time. They but they could never get him just because of the way that King had an adaptation to switch his schedule. He was late. He missed his flight. So. Bear misses, but it has happened numerous times where they were prepared to kill him. Finally, in Memphis, uh, for whatever reason, and I know, and I know we don't want to give away too much, you know, with your book, but for whatever reason, I remember you saying that that w- it wasn't supposed to actually happen that day. But for whatever reason, they took an opportunity and and took advantage of it, and they assassinated him. Now, Dr. King is dead. Um, obviously, you know, Stoner has done things. He used to do things to rile up and get King to come to different places. Um, that was the whole plan. Hey, let's ploy him over here. Let's do this. That'll get him here and we can take him out. Um, all in the, in the name of white supremacy, if you will. Now, let's fast forward just maybe, maybe, uh, maybe three months afterwards. Where are we, where are we heading with him and how does Stoner and his group? tie into the Atlanta child murders in 79 and 80, because based on the research that I have done, and again, documentaries can be very biased. You can swing it any way that you want. But based on the research that I have, and um, speaking to, looks like some interviews they did with the FBI, the FBI felt that they didn't have enough evidence to show that uh, the Klan, if you will, uh, had anything to Uh, do with these massacres that occurred. So I'll I'll let you take it from there, but let's let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Um okay real quick backtrack real quick on the very day that King is assassinated, JB Stoner literally danced in the streets. Wow. Um and he danced in the streets of Meridian, Mississippi with members of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And that's the sort of core group that we say was largely behind the bounty offer on King. Mm -hmm. He then, in newspaper articles, because this will get us to get people to think about where he goes with the Atlanta child martyrs, in, when I should say newspaper articles, as much as his own racist periodical, they call the Thunderbolt,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, he was openly just almost celebrating, licking his lips at the prospects of what he thought would be a a nationwide, ultimately worldwide race war. Mm -hmm. He thought it was coming. And again, if you were around, especially after King was murdered, it wasn't just lunatics like Stoner who might've been thinking we were heading in a direction of at least widespread racial and just general domestic civil unrest. It had already been happening. And after King gets murdered, we have dozens, I mean, over a hundred independent, or not independent, related urban riots across the country in the frustration and anger that came from dr king's death Mm -hmm. in many ways if it wasn't for the king family reminding americans what martin luther king stood for who knows where it would have gone we had the largest uh imposition of the federal army into policing in the united states since reconstruction and the civil war and so Stoner and a lot of people like him thought this was their moment, their literal religious moment that was going to lead to Armageddon, Mm -hmm. like an Armageddon for bigots.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: And so they didn't get it. But that but they still nonetheless felt. And and this is the history of a lot of sort of apocalyptic religious ideas, including, by the way, maybe we could make the comparison later with ISIS. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that you're. You have this. This is going to happen. It's going to happen. And then it doesn't happen. And instead of giving up, they double down. Right. Um, and so what happens is not long after that, the the group of people, especially that I'm most interested in, the Christian identity, jihadists, for lack of a better word, they get a pretty devastating blow to them. They lose sort of their High priest, a guy by the name of Wesley Swift, the Reverend Wesley Swift out of California. He's sort of almost like the Osama bin Laden for the Christian identity, white supremacist terrorist groups. He dies and the groups tend to fragment. But in their fragmentation, they're, they're becoming even more focused on sort of pursuing their ideological agenda. And then... Towards the late '70s, they start to sort of reassemble, like you know, some kind of, you know, transformer or something. In terms of their ability to interact and work with each other, um, one of the more one of those sort of the galvanizing events is what happened in Greensboro, in North Carolina,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and it's for the first time the American Nazi Party and the Klan sort of unite together. And there's a lot of hope amongst white supremacists of this Christian identity ilk that they're back on track, that they're going to get the kind of coalescing of various Christian identity groups, that they're going to be able to pull off what they want to pull off. In that environment, you still have J.B. Stoner, who's been on the Christian identity bandwagon almost from the time it started. And his colleague, who's still alive, a gentleman by the name of Ed Fields, they're both diehard Christian identity folks, and they're in Atlanta. And Atlanta, late 1970s, there's a lot of cities that are sort of experiencing economic frustration of stagflation, high unemployment, high prices, and there's an incident in Atlanta where it was, I think it was a white doctor is gets is is a victim of a crime and and it sort of starts to light a little bit of a fire within sort of a racial tension that's sort of been underneath the surface in that city, and then something else starts happening. Young black children and teenagers start being killed week after week. You're finding children who disappeared who were kidnapped. And you're finding their bodies and they're being strangled or shot or killed in various and assorted ways. As you might imagine, as this proceeds, there is a lot of frustration, justifiably, with a lack of actual arrests. Mm -hmm. The families of the victims form almost like an interest group. And so... In the conventional story, a gentleman by the name of Wayne Williams, he's caught after he drops what they believe might be a body uh, into the Chattahoochee River. I think that's how you pronounce the name of the river. Correct. And, and then he is then taken into custody, and he's charged with a handful of these murders. He's, he's like a radio technician, disc jockey type, um, African-American gentleman. And he is eventually convicted. And in the lore, they say that ended the story and the killings ended. But if you dig deeper, what you start to find, and this is not just coming from, you know, cranks. This is coming from people in the Atlanta PD and FBI profilers. Mm-hmm. They all will be open in saying there were far more killings than we even charged Wayne Williams with. We're not even convinced Wayne Williams did all of the killings that he was actually were actually attributed to him, and they continued after he was arrested. And so, there was a group of two reporters from Spin Magazine, who a few years after Wayne Williams are, is is convicted, they get what a basically is a whistleblower provides them with material from the investigation into the Klan and other groups, but primarily the Klan. And what these spin reporters reveal, and if I have time, I could even read it to you, is there are actual tape recordings of a group of a family of Klan members known as the Sanders family, Mm -hmm. where they're openly talking to somebody who they don't know, at least we don't believe they know, is an informant for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation about participating in in the Atlanta child murders. And if you go back and look, uh, members of the Sanders family meet, uh, fit closely with the profiles of the people who were being identified as possibly being a part of the Atlanta child murders before Wayne Williams was arrested. You have things like dog hairs being found at the scenes of some of these murders that match Siberian Huskies, and these folks breed them. Mm. And so I haven't gone to your essential question, and it is this. Where does J.B. Stoner fit? Well, the element of this, many people, including, I believe, this documentary series, and there's been new information with new people coming forward about the Sanders family. Um, a lot of people have pointed out, including Spin Magazine, the Sanders family looks awfully darn suspicious. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, shoot. Again, they're on tape. How much more do you need? Talking about going out to kill black children and I'm changing the words that they use. Right. And so. What is less talked about and I believe needs to be thoroughly explored, especially in light of what I have been talking to the audience about, about this race war agenda, mm-hmm. the idea that they need to ignite a race war is that the Sanders family was very closely connected to J.B. Stoner and his partner in crime, Ed Fields. Mm. Uh, Don Sanders had served as a bodyguard for J.B. Stoner. One of the, the sons, the patriarch is Carlton Sanders, and they were in ongoing communications and contact with the newest iteration of the National States Rights Party and Ed Fields trying to procure weapons for Ed Fields. What were the weapons for? And this is why, again, I think it has not been not been pursued nearly to the degree that it needs to be. It was for paramilitary operations that Fields was and Stoner were running in the woods of Georgia in preparation for a in upcoming or imminent race war wow um and so why we do not have and i want to be very clear we don't have a tape of uh charles sanders or don sanders saying hey jb should i go out and kill these black children remember what i told folks at the beginning jb stoner was a lawyer and unfortunately a pretty darn good one
2: mm-hmm.
1: He also was well aware that he had been bugged and surveilled, and so was Ed Fields. The idea that they would go on record with something like that, you know, defies common sense. But what we do know is that Atlanta, during the time of the Atlanta child murders, the kinds of stuff that these white supremacist Christian identity people love to see happening, was starting to happen. Uh, More militant black groups were coming to town and they were talking about getting weapons. They were talking about going toe to toe with stoner and stoner was doing his usual gig of trying to rile up the white community in the town. And it just fits so neatly with the Christian identity agenda that I think it needs to be explored. And by the way, Don, the, the, it's not in the tapes, but in the informant reports The Sanders family was openly saying they were doing this as a provocative act to try and incite race war.
0: That is that is scary stuff. And that was in the 70s and 80s. Um, The one thing it's funny uh, to just go back to something that you're saying um, about Greensboro, North Carolina. That's actually where I am. And they actually talk about that anniversary of of. uh, of that big thing uh, with the Klan and uh, the police shootout, I believe is what you're referring to. Absolutely. Yeah. they uh, uh, There's video footage that they show, and it just amazes me. Um, that was a huge thing. It was really, really big. And uh, some people got killed behind that, and um, they always talk about the anniversary of it in, uh, here in Greensboro. But, um, you know, when you look at this Christian ideology that, that you keep referring to, now that I think about it, when you see these crazy militia groups on TV, when they're talking about they're out in the woods preparing and they have these guns and then they have the, uh, the Nazi symbolism or the, the Nazi uniforms, um, it only makes sense for what you're saying. And, and this is the reason, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to do a podcast like this because I believe that there's so much data and so much information that's out there that people really don't understand how these things work. And it's not, you know, people in a different generation now would say, well, how is that even possible for one man or two men to be that powerful and to be able to accomplish the things that these two men have accomplished? And the best way that I would explain it is you have to understand that the time that you're dealing with, you're not in an age of social media. You're not in an age of the Internet. So people know people. We know these things still go on in politics today. We know that there are still, hey, you know you take care of me, I'll take care of you. We know that still happens. That's, it's been that way for years, right? But when you're talking about corrupt police, people in high prestige, prestigious, an attorney, stoner sounds like a guy that had a little money, you know, um, it's very, very easy. And if, if, if he's a racist in the police, po- the police department, pretty, for the most part, are probably racist because that's how they were raised. It's very, very easy to control the things that you can you know, to control some of the things that you're referring to. Um it's it's not that hard and I think people people have to remember it's a different time. And so um
1: it's it's it it only
0: makes sense to me.
1: Well, the the one thing I, I like I really try and, and get across to folks because I think what happens and it's very much to the detriment of our own safety. Mm-hmm is we we should be looking at the the people I'm talking about as in a very similar model to when we look at Salafi jihadism and al-Qaeda and ISIS. Mm -hmm. And nobody runs around saying, I just can't believe that uh, Osama bin Laden or... Nowadays, I'm an al Zawahiri, or, you know, the head of ISIS or whoever it is. No one says, I just can't believe they inspired or encouraged or helped promote this attack here and this attack here and this attack there or these attacks over time. Everyone all accepts the model that what they do is they instigate mm-hmm. and they prom- and they encourage and sometimes they lend An element of material support and it's maybe easier now via say um a you know the social media but understand in in light of what you're saying the time period you couldn't have a meeting in the united states of international jihadists at like a hotel in a conference room right at the time of the atlanta child murders Stoner organized just that kind of a meeting for white supremacists. So in the United States, they could get together, (laughs) meet up with each other with and not worry about like the whole town coming and burning them to the ground the way we probably would if there was like an international meeting of jihadists, you know, in, in in Philly or something like that. Right. Right. So so it was a different kind of model. And it's the same, but it's the same idea. The ideas are what's important. And so while I think there may be something more direct with Stoner and the Atlanta child murders, what I have very little doubt is that people like the Sanders family were influenced by these kinds of ideas about race war. Because if you go back to like 1925, when the Klan was huge in America, and when it started to direct its attention beyond African-Americans to the recent wave of immigrants, Catholics and Jews, right? they weren't talking about race war back then. This is, a, again, I hate to use this word, this is an innovation of Christian identity. And I can tell you by the 1980s, scholars were very well aware and the FBI was of just how influential that ideology had become the leading expert on domestic terrorism probably then and arguably now a guy named Bruce Hoffman he would write reports for the Rand Corporation about terrorism well if you looked at one of his first reports in the late 1980s it's about 80 or so pages exactly one page deals with Middle Eastern terrorism and I'm not even sure if it even mentions or barely mentions religion as a motivating factor. The vast majority, the plurality of pages in that book, all 16 of them, were devoted to domestic right-wing terrorism. And when Bruce Hoffman put out a chart of all the major domestic right-wing terrorist groups in the country, at the top, the umbrella was Christian identity. He said that every single group was under the influence of Christian identity ideology. All these groups were being influenced by race war ideology. And so just a few years later, you get this militia movement. What had happened was there was a crackdown on these folks Mm -hmm. and a a surveillance crackdown. And one, I think we probably need to re-implement if we're not doing it already. We certainly need to not stop it. And, that forced a lot of these people into smaller and smaller groups. Not so far off, by the way, of what happened to Al Qaeda, right? Mm-hmm. Forces them into smaller and eventually to lone wolf type stuff. But look at who are taking the lead on some of these militia groups. Many of them are die in the wool Christian identity folks. And we stopped the number of attacks. That could have been absolutely devastating in the 80s and 90s from these Christian identity groups who wanted to do just horrific things in hopes of igniting a race war.
0: That's crazy because, uh, as we said earlier, you know, you're seeing more and more of this. Right. Um, And I heard some statistic the other day um, when they were talking about domestic terrorism uh, in the United States and I'm, I'm going to ask your opinion and then we'll 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 get into some of the evidence um, regarding um, the Atlanta child murders. But do you believe just based on what you see, what you hear and you're a smart guy, do you believe based on our current president's stance and the way that he conducts his business and the way he goes about his business uh, that this is a reason why we're seeing so many openly racist people and so many openly racist acts starting to happen more and more on a daily basis, whether it's from, from black people, uh, you know, uh, Muslims are, are starting to get it. Um, and, and, and others, even immigrants, people that are not of those descents from other countries, um, do you believe that that has a, a, a the reason why we have a rise? Because in your book, um, you know, America's Secret Jihad. That's I think that that title's a great title because a lot of people don't think about the domestication of terrorism right here in the states. Hell, I even remember I was a big Twenty Four fan. If you remember that show, love it. Twenty Four. I don't know who they were speaking to. I don't know who the producers were of that show. But if you go back and watch seasons of that show, a lot of that stuff was already talked about before these before any of these, these things uh, even happened. So somebody out there knows something or that there's a history there or there's a piece there that they know that these things can can occur. But do you think that the, the president's current status in the way that he conducts themselves has a lot to, to do with a rise in that? Um,
1: well, it's always difficult to sort of these causation correlation things. I don't think it helps. I'll speak to the thing that concerns me the absolute most. Mm -hmm. The idea that you're going to withdraw and de-emphasize domestic terrorism and right-wing terrorism at this current time, which is what's been talked about on and off for two to three years, is absolutely insane to me.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I don't think, I, I think we would benefit a lot If the president were to openly condemn more forcefully what's happening and and what I'm about to say is not in defense of the current president, but it's a it's a reminder to folks Um, and it had absolutely nothing to do with anything he said or did. It was simply by the fact of who he was. We had a vast and rapid expansion of white supremacist groups and hate groups during Obama's administration mm-hmm. and not because Barack Obama wasn't concerned about it, but unfortunately you get a, the, a, a black president and you get like the, you get this enormous growth in these types of groups and then you allow all sorts of crazy slurs to be done and made against Barack Obama. Mm hmm. Without really coming down on it, and you nurture that kind of mindset. So I I think the politics in general for not just the past uh, four years or three years, but for the past uh, 11 years has really put fuel into the rise of these kinds of groups. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's. I, I just wanted to see what your opinion was on that because, I, and I I heard the statistic after the New Zealand incident um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I, I just don't remember the numbers, but it was just talking about how much domestic terrorism has rose over the years, and um, you know more and more people, politicians, um, uh, people that are you know in higher elite positions, um, lawyers, CEOs are being found out to be when you look in history are being found out to be, you know, openly racist. Um, And it's it's uh, it's I think it's sad for the time and the year that we are in that we are still still dealing with this. But it just seems like now there's more added on to it. Right. So you have blacks, you have uh, Mexicans. Now you have, you know, the Jewish community uh, is definitely uh, still impacted by forms of racism, Um, and, and it's, and it's seeming like I can just see, like I can, in the if you get in the mind of a white supremacist, they're taking away every single thing that they don't feel to be pure, sort of that Hitler mentality as you, as you refer to, right. Until there's only one race in their opinion, which, um, you know, is, is when you think about it, it's scary. Um, but you know, I, I, I think there are more good people than there are bad, but it's just kind of, when you, when you put it all together and just start thinking, When what you see, you can see where they're really
1: alarming to me is, is, you know, there are scholars out there. They they study how political subcultures are created. And Mm -hmm. and one of the biggest things sort of the Petri dish, so to speak, for for political subcultures is they people have to become aware that there are other people like them Mm -hmm. and that their ideas are not as far outside the mainstream as they think. At that point, you tend to get this. If you have the apparatus for people to link up with each other, and now we have that more than ever, you can get a political subculture. And, you know, some political subcultures aren't so bad, but obviously a white supremacist political subculture, a white nationalist political subculture is really dangerous. And it's even more dangerous. If I could take a step back
2: mm-hmm.
1: because. Of the nature of this race war ideology and if you just go through the some of these recent attacks uh dylan roof said he wanted to incite and provoke a race war and in the same way that these guys from from the 1960s you you do something so provocative that you try and you know incite the people you attack so that they attack back and then you create this sort of cycle of retaliation that's been on the agenda i can point you to things that people directly said, that's been on the agenda since at least the 1960s. Um, You get uh, the gentleman who shot up, uh, Robert Bowers, who shot up the the Tree of Life synagogue.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You actually will find uh, Christian identity references on his Twitter feed. (laughs) Um, And then you go to Christchurch. Now, the gentleman who shot that place up we have no direct evidence he was christian identity this is nor did we have evidence that uh dylan roof was but as again that ideology was allowed to just basically fester for decades to the point where it in it, it, it's in the ether it's they breathe it in the air without realizing wow. and what he says is he openly describes i mean i could have it could have been straight out of the J.B. Stoner handbook. He openly describes efforts to incite people against each other to put out false propaganda about one race versus another, to put out false flag operations to blame one race for attacks over the other in hopes of creating, again, a race war. And we really need to dive into the race war idea, the, the race war Christian and the origins of it in Christian identity, the race war ideology. Because it's, you know, all terrorist types of ideas are are dangerous. But the idea that you need to be provocative and maximize killing and maximize the horror of your killings for the sake of creating a race war, that's in a little bit of a different class. Not that it's particularly good than, you know, if I kill somebody, they'll move out of my neighborhood.
0: Right. Wow. So uh, going to Atlanta, so we're, we're now in the late 70s, 79 to 81, um, that these things were happening and these killings were happening. One of the things that I saw in research was they also, because some people might say to you, well, Stu, I hear what you're saying, but there was also evidence found for Mr. Williamson as well, because one of the big things that they talked about was the carpet. The same type of carpeting and uh, I think I believe there was uh, one of the kids had been strangled and they found some things or fibers, if you will. They said when they were doing some some evidence. But the biggest thing that stood out that I heard them talk about was the carpet. But they could not explain why the carpet was not taken or while I guess when this this FBI agent was investigating, did not think about the the. The, the, the item that could have been used to strangle one of the young uh, the young kids or one of the young men. What do you say to those that try to say, well, the evidence is there to show that he was the one that actually did it?
1: Well, let me be clear. Mm-hmm. I actually think Wayne Williams, good chance he killed some okay. of those children. OK. Um, and he may well, on the issues of not to get too far afield, um, the the. The the fiber and and evidence nowadays is increasingly coming under attack, not for his case, but just in general. OK. Part of a larger um, questioning of forensic, uh, you know, sciences that is sometimes gets ignored much to our detriment. But I think there's other really good reasons, including the whole incident on the, the Chattahoochee Bridge. Mm hmm wonder about Wayne Williams and his sort of violent outbursts at trial um, and other things. He may have done it. But again, it's almost physically impossible for him to have done all of the killings that we now believe happened. If you go beyond the sort of narrow definition of what they put on the list and they called it the list of black children and teenagers who were killed if you just change some of the geography if you just change some of the modus operandi the method of killing if you change the age profile you suddenly could add 15 to 20 people to the list and nobody thinks wayne williams killed them
2: Mm.
1: so um what what i'm describing and it's pretty devious but it comes out in the actual documentation and even some of the tape recordings of the Sanders family is a group of people who saw black children getting killed and said, this is our chance to, to pour gasoline on the fire. We'll kill some ourselves. We'll add an extra two dozen to the list. And now we'll see if we can push Atlanta. And again, maybe they wanted it to be much bigger than that into an out-and-out out conflagration. Can we pull that off? Um, and what happened was the the arrest of Wayne Williams becomes a convenient opportunity to basically avoid, ignore, um, explain away a lot of the other things that are inconsistent with him doing it by himself, all of the killings.
2: hmm
0: yeah, he's an interesting character. Um, he was recently interviewed, and he basically, you know, he's been in jail for a while now. And obviously, as you as as you know, the way that the human mind works, as you get older, you get smarter. Typically, you get wiser. So he knows what to say and how to say it. Um, but one of the things that stood out as I was looking at some some information is basically what you said: his outburst in the courtroom. Um, also, he talked about. He even said that I never should have uh, of uh, let the, my temper get the best of me that day. He said because he saw the looks on the jurors' face afterwards, and he saw the look on the judge's face, and uh, he goes on to say that you know there's no way that he could have did the killings. He said he didn't do it, and he said if the evidence uh, when uh, he was asked about the the carpet, they they you know here's the funny thing, and I, now this is coming back to me, my muscle memory. They asked him about had he had any special training,
1: mm-hmm. and you've probably heard about, about this, right? The, same thing.
0: the special training via the CIA.
1: He, he claimed that he was he was a part of a group of people who were getting trained by the CIA in like the woods of of Georgia, right? Um, I'm a little bit skeptical, <laughs> um, but what was fascinating is is when he said that. This he claimed that he was trained how to how to choke somebody to death.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Um I believe that was with Soledad O'Brien and I think there was some kind of DNA test that they did that even linked him much more concretely mm-hmm. to one of the crimes. Um I'd have to go back and, and check it. Um but again, I mean I have no problem believing Wayne Williams killed, you know, 9, 10, 11 people. I have a problem that he killed 55.
2: Right.
0: Um just, just like you said, yeah, because this 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 piece and you guys can check it out on YouTube, you know, if you just if you just uh search for Atlanta child murders, everything comes up. Uh but on this piece on YouTube specifically, this doc said that when this first started happening, no one really paid attention to it. It was sort of swept under the rug. Oh, well, maybe it, you know, it's a black kid, you're in Georgia, and during that time, obviously Georgia, Atlanta was still a very, very, you know, racist parts of, of, of that state and that city. But they they say that they said they would report a child missing and the police would say things to them like, Oh, well, maybe he ran away. Or, you know, maybe he's not coming back. Things like that. And these kids would be missing for years. And then uh, something triggered it. I, I forgot exactly what triggered it.
1: Families did. Yeah, fam-
0: the, the families, families came forward.
1: They rail- they stayed organized and mobilized and basically went right ahead as, as pretty brave of them. And just started demanding that something, that this get looked at, that the media pay attention and that the police go harder on this right and they started to get a lot more sort of celebrity type of attention to it and at that point like muhammad ali at one point sammy davis jr sammy davis jr and so to that really put pressure on the atlanta pd and the fbi good pressure in a way because get off your rear ends and stop these kids from being killed but Maybe some not so good pressure in the sense that the law enforcement felt the need to close out these cases maybe a lot sooner than we think. Mm -hmm. I'd add a third thing. There is – I don't know it's a third theory because as far as I'm concerned, if you told me that there were three different waves of killings that were independent of each other, I'd have no problem believing that. There There were allegations that this may connect to a pedophile rank. Okay. That was happening in Georgia and that that pedophile ring might go up the chain in terms of local politics. Mm. I'm not nearly as convinced by this. There is some there is some sort of I mean, well I should say I'm not nearly as convinced. I don't think it explains quite a few of the murders, but it may explain a few. Um and so again, there may have been political reasons why people didn't dig as deeply into these cases as maybe they, they should have also, but the families short circuited that and did a brave thing and really got the attention to it.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That is, that is the, yeah, I, I do recall that because, uh, Ali, Sammy Davis Jr. Frank Sinatra as well, uh, yep. came and it just showed him, you know, that they were taking pictures with some of the kids in the community and, and, and things like that. Now, in the in the chapter of your book, America's Secret Jihad. Which guys, if you haven't checked out uh, Stu's books, Mr. Wexler's books, make sure you do. Go check out America's Secret Jihad. Uh, also, his um, his co his authoring and co-authoring. Um, I forgot the other gentleman's name that co-authored with you,
1: Larry oh, Hancock. And the book, the most recent one would be Killing King.
0: Killing King is. Uh, you want to check that out as well. Um, I believe you can find both of those on Amazon. But also, go and check out some some of Stu's stuff on YouTube. I caught a couple of your interviews on YouTube. And um, you got some good stuff out there as well, if you guys haven't seen that, where you talk about a little bit of everything on the one that I actually saw. But at the end of the day, you brought it back to the Christian ideology of why some of these things are are actually occurring and happening. So I I applaud you for... um, giving us this information and this data to get, to get people's eyes opened up. Again, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast. I wanted to put information out there for people to give my opinion or give my guest's opinion of what they believe and let people walk away with their own formatted opinion and do the research. Because at the end of the day, researching and coming coming together with your own state of mind on what you think occurred is what you want to do. You know That's a good sound decision. Don't go off conspiracy theories. Don't go off of what you heard. Um, you know, doing the research is always probable, and you have a lot of data out there for. So I certainly appreciate that. Um, talking about the Atlanta child murders, um, as we get into the the final minutes of, still, we'll make this a part one of okay. of this of this series. We'll come back and do a part two for everybody. Sure. But talking about this whole thing, do you believe that Stoner and his cronies? Once uh, Williams was arrested, you, you've already we've already seen that they started to slow down a little bit, like they stopped basically, which is what made the police and the public obviously say, "Oh, well, yeah, obviously he's in jail. It stopped. You know, nothing, nothing else is happening." Get this into the mind, and I know it's hard to do, but when you think about it, I heard someplace or I read somewhere that they said to be as devious as stoner and uh what was the other guy's name
1: um uh, well ed fields in this particular fields.
0: instance to be as devious as fields and and stoner you have to be you have to be smart you have to be able to play both sides and in the end you're on neither side you're on your you're you're fitting your you're making your agenda right so mm-hmm. i may go to the clan to your point of of some of the things that you said on our last episode and today I may go to the clan and talk about these things to the clan, but really, I'm not thinking about what they're thinking about. I'm thinking of a bigger picture. But I know that I can get them to do the other little things that I want them to do to make my full, you know, my my plan move forward. You know, it baffles me how someone could be that devious. I mean, you're talking about human beings. You're talking mm-hmm. about people, people who don't even know you most of the time, and mm-hmm. you have people conspiring you know conspiring and setting up plots and plans because of a religious belief and mm-hmm. it's what's makes it so crazy is it's a Christianity belief where Christianity teaches typical Christianity teaches all people are love we're all God's children etc 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 they've just taken that and flipped it around the same way uh, that some Muslims have done with the Quran and it just baffles me how that can, can continue and people believe
1: that. Well, let me make a suggestion to you, and it's it's the kind of observation that only comes when you're willing to see how Christianity can be con- perverted as much as Islam can be perverted for the purposes of 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 killing. I would suggest to you that a real way of thinking about how religious terrorism operates, is they struggle to figure out ways of placing people out of the concern of their religion, mm-hmm. outside the orbit of religious concern. What do I mean? Is if you're if you dig into ISIS and Al Qaeda, a lot of people don't know this. By far, and it's not even close. The number one victims of uh, terrorist attacks by Salafi jihadists are Muslims. It's not even remotely close. They're the most killed people by groups like al-Qaeda there is. Mm. And anyone who knows anything about Islam, probably the single number one prohibition is against killing a fellow Muslim. Right. Killing is prohibited, period. Suicide is prohibited, period. But killing a fellow Muslim in a suicide attack, that's about as bad as you can get. How'd they do it? Because they come up with a way, this is called Takfiri. Where they can say just about any person who doesn't follow the religion in as orthodox and as fundamentalist the way as they do is not only not enlightened, not only not a true Muslim, but an absolute apostate who deserves to be killed. And this is something that's almost unknown in the history of Islam. And it's something that's widely condemned. Thousands of imams have condemned the stuff and the ideas of takfir that you get from ISIS and Mm al-Qaeda. So let me shift it over to Christian identity. How do they do what they – the stuff they do? Now, without question, both Islam and Christianity have been associated with violence and religious conflicts and persecutions before – but to go after civilians to the extent that this does requires a lot of heavy lifting so you go back to the original i the, the you got to go to the book of genesis to understand how christian identity people pervert the religion and they do it in two ways they do it first by saying that jews are literally the offspring of the devil the byproduct of a relationship between eve and the serpent in mm-hmm. the garden of eden mm-hmm. And they say that blacks and you, you you almost got it in that stoner quote, almost this whole thing you got in a stoner quote that you that you read. Blacks and other people of color are subhuman uh, descendants of the so-called beasts of the field. But right? they're not even fully human. They're humanoids. Mm-hmm. So you can have a situation, for instance, in the late 1960s, when there was a wave of anti-Jewish bombings and anti-black bombings in Mississippi. And the person who I, you know, he's the feature on most of my talks when I talk about King Assassination. I mean, Sam Bowers, another one of the worst religious terrorists and worst racial terrorists we've ever had in the country. He writes a letter when two of his people get shot up, one of them gets killed in a sting operation to stop this wave of bombings from happening. He writes a letter saying, uh, you killed... um." You folks, you police, you killed uh basically what amounts to a martyr or a saint, and you almost killed another one. And you did it protecting, and here's the key, the synagogue of Satan and subhuman uh mud people, basically. I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing. Right. What he's saying, he ran re- he used to run Sunday schools, <laughs> Sam Backwards. Right? Right. And and he used to tell the people at the beginning of the meetings that he ran, he used to, first of all, force them to listen to Bible readings. And he used to tell them, you need to show Christian concern for all the, you know, potential, um, collateral damage. Right. Mm-hmm. You must love your enemies. If your enemies are white Europeans, you need to love them. Not if they're not even part of the human race. Then you don't have to listen to Jesus anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's a lot of religion is about trying to define people outside of the concern of your religious beliefs. Then you could do whatever you want to them. They're the other at that point. Um, So I'd say that, and uh, to your other point, which I think – if you go to the, the the sort of top ten of like you know Christian identity folks, they're unfortunately a good deal smarter than the rank and file people that you see, you know, throwing people to the ground in Birmingham during the Freedom Rides. Right. You're talking people who people Stoner was a straight A law student. Um, Sam Bowers had an engineering degree or was pursuing one. Um, another gentleman graduated from Columbia. Uh, you go down the list. Um, admiral Cromelin, who was a big time racist and Christian identity person, he, I mean, he was he got to be an admiral. You don't get to be an admiral by being dumb. Right. And so they're 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 unfortunately very smart, but they also adapt, and you see the same thing. With ISIS, although it's a little bit of a different direction. And so in the case of ISIS, a lot of the senior leadership people are not nearly as religiously radical as you might think. Mm. A lot of them are former Ba'athists who had political power under Saddam Hussein, lost that power after the United States de-ba'ath- did de and took over Iraq. Excuse me. And so they're using ISIS because ISIS was controlling oil fields, was stealing priceless artifacts, was engaged in uh, white slavery or whatever you want to call it. Right. So they were doing this to get power back and to get money back. And they put on the airs of religious radicals so that they can manipulate the people in ISIS who were religious radicals to do their bidding. And all that happens with the people I write about is it's a slightly little bit reverse. They see a secular group, the regular Ku Klux Klan, or the National States Rights Party in theory, the rank-and-file people, and they see thousands of would-be pawns in their game to try and start a race war. And because they could not overtly convince them and tried – they tried and failed Mm -hmm. to overtly convince these people – that you really need to make this about the Jews, too. They then decided, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. Let's just do exactly what you said. Let's manipulate them. Let's maneuver them. And we'll get what we want anyway through the back door.
0: That is crazy, man. That is is some crazy stuff. Well, guys, we've been speaking with uh, Stuart Wexler. He is the author of America's Secret Jihad. Make sure you guys go to Amazon and check that out. We're gonna do a part two on this series, and still, what we'll come back and and uh, talk about and discuss is uh, Williams's trial, some of the things that happened there. But I also want to touch on and on on the second part, uh, the bombing of the daycare that started this whole thing in Atlanta. Um, we
1: definitely can talk about that.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll come back and touch on that, and. Um, but Stuart, you know, it's always a pleasure having you come by and dropping just loads of information on us, man, and letting us know what's going on. And, um, for you listeners, make sure you go check out his books, uh, do his research, you know, check out some of his interviews on YouTube. Obviously, listen to these episodes. If you, um, when I upload this episode, make sure you guys go back and listen to the, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, episode, the special edition of that. But, uh, Stu, it's always a pleasure, man. Any, any final words for our listening audience? Um, no,
1: except that if they go back to the King stuff and read my King stuff, they'll see J.B. Stoner coincidentally became the attorney for James Earl Ray, the <laughs> accused assassin. Just, uh, just So if you want more of him, you could, you could find him. But thank you so much for having me on.
0: Man, it's always a pleasure having you on. And uh, guys, this has been the Let's Be Honest podcast, episode 23. We're going to be talking with you soon. This is part one of our Uh, episode regarding the Atlanta child murders with Stuart Wexler. We'll talk to you guys very, very soon.